Welcome to Naturally Nourished, a food is medicine podcast that delivers cutting edge information and solutions for optimal health. Allie Miller is a nutrition expert sought out by the media and America's top medical institutes for her revolutionary functional medicine interventions. From disease treatment to prevention, every episode will empower you with ways to put yourself back in control of your health. Please note, the topics discussed are for educational purposes only and should not be used in place of any medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment from a licensed health professional. Now welcome your host, Allie Miller, Integrative Dietitian and owner of Naturally Nourished, and her Vice President, Integrative Dietitian Carly Vogler. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to the Naturally Nourished podcast. You are joining us at episode 27, and this is Allie Miller speaking here with my co-host Carly Vogler. Hey there. Um, And today we are going to be talking about the last kind of personal intimate element of my pregnancy, the completion of my pregnancy with the third trimester and also the birth story of Stella, my little one. Yay! Who's here yes. with us today? Yes, so if you hear any cooing in the background, <laughs> hopefully she stays in her sleep mode. <laughs> so yes, Allie, talk to us about what happened since, if you can remember the delineation when we last ended off about your second trimester and then catch us up on your experience, feelings, emotions, sensations, all that good sure, stuff. Sure, sure. So, you know, last uh, semester, trimester, sorry, my second trimester, um, semester I was going to say, um, we left off where I had just transferred care to a midwife. Um, we had diagnosed my iron deficiency and I was working with the petechiae and the higher iron dosage, coping with constipation because of that. And I had just opted out of the oral glucose tolerance test. So we went through all of those things and some natural remedies in the, the second trimester episode, which was episode 25. Um, so definitely check in on that if you want to hear about the transition why I worked with a midwife and things like that Um, but so when I found myself in my third trimester this is weeks um, 27 through 40 I um, was starting to experience a lot more movement so I just started to feel Stella move in my belly um, in the second trimester but by the third trimester of course towards those last five weeks or so feeling specific body parts getting heels stuck in my diaphragm and all sorts of fun things um and uh feelings uh definitely experienced some of the denning sensation or the the needing to create the space for stella getting her room ready whatnot a little bit of anxieties um and sensations i think again the biggest thing would be feeling her in my body she was definitely nocturnal most movement when i would lay down um and towards the end there it was actually even difficult to sleep because she was pretty mobile um so a lot of movements in the evenings keeping me awake and uh, a lot more frequent restroom runs (laughs) with her weight (laughs) on my bladder for sure so at this point medically how are you being monitored with the midwives so yeah, so I, my last ultrasound was at week 20, which was in my second um, trimester. So I was doing bi-weekly appointments um, in the third trimester. And then once I got to week 35 onward, I had weekly appointments. And at each appointment, they would run my urine to look for glucose, proteins um, in my urine and ketones. 
They also would palpate my abdomen to feel the positioning of the baby. And they would use a Doppler, um, which would measure a little less invasive um, than, of course, an ultrasound. And that would monitor the heart rate of the baby. So they would take notes on those things. Um, I ended up doing one additional run of blood work because of my iron being previously low and um, my iron had corrected. I had a normal CBC, so my hemoglobin and hematocrit had corrected. I was able to bring my iron down some, which was nice. And that was really important thinking of potential home birth for blood loss. And then another lab that was done towards the last couple weeks is a test for group B strep. Um, that's a really common um, issue with uh, a lot of women. And if you do have group B strep, um, then you have to go on IV antibiotics during your delivery. And that's across the board, whether it's a home birth or you do have the option of opting out, but um, it's not smart to do that because the baby can get infected with that during the vaginal delivery. Um, and I was negative for group B strep. Some of the things, be that it's a virus, um, some of the things that I did was bumped up um, garlic intake, doubled my probiotics, and was doing the master tonic, um, which is an antiviral um, bacteria, antibacterial compound. You can check out a link to that on our blog if you search master tonic. It has um, horseradish, uh, really spicy peppers, apple cider vinegar, garlic, ginger, and I think those are the main I think that's components. It. Yeah, onion maybe as well. Maybe. Um, and it's all blended up and then fermented. And then you drink about a shot of that. And it has really high antiviral properties. So who knows if I had had it po prior and killed it off or if um, I never had it. So, But either way, I tested negative for that. So I was very excited to not have to use the um, IV antibiotics going into the birth. Okay. And then you told me a little bit about a birth camp, a uh, boot camp? Yeah, yeah. So I also did, um, it was called Birth Boot Camp. It's a company out of Dallas. Um, so we're in the Houston area. And this was 10 sessions, a lot of information that we started at week 30. Um, it's all about natural births. We learned laboring positions. We learned um, complications and how to avoid them, um, transfer into hospital and how to anticipate that. Um, and all sorts of elements of preparing best for birth, including diet, movement, mentality. Um, so I thought it was really nice. It was helpful for Brady and I. It was two hours every Sunday that we just really kind of focused on um, creating the best environment for bringing and welcoming a child into the world. And then through that boot camp, I actually met a doula that we hired on um, and a um, chiropractor. And I started seeing the chiropractor every week, twice a week at week 35 onward. And she was certified in Webster technique, which is spinning babies. And it's supposed to help with the best um, positioning of, of the baby. And so can you clarify a little bit what is the difference between a midwife and a doula? Yeah, I think that's a great question. So a doula does not have any medical training. A doula is there to be a support in the birth process and um, to provide emotional support as well as some birth positioning. Um, they're going to do more hands-on techniques, things like massage, um, maybe belly sifting, um, pretty much helping your birth partner, like your husband or spouse, throughout the process and you, and then being your liaison, per se, to your medical team. So it's usually more intimate, um, less medical, and more hands-on. 
So it's nice to have both if you have the option. Absolutely. So when I talked to my midwives, they had a birth um, a birth assistant who's a nursing assistant and then the nurse practitioner midwife. But then they still said, you know, if you're in labor for 12 plus hours and your husband needs a nap, you're probably going to want a doula because we're really focusing on your vitals, monitoring your medical condition, just like your physician team would be not really there to like coach you per se. Sure. So okay. it's nice to have to have both options but you'll all hear that things were very different than planned <laughs> dun, dun, yes dun. <laughs> and that makes a lot of sense too the the combination of having both yes so let's talk about preparation what kinds of things were you doing to make sure you were ready um let's start with talking about what you were eating because I know everybody cares mostly about that yeah yeah so um like I said I was working on my immune system for sure going into the third trimester knowing that there's high susceptibility to infection post-birth um, and trying to battle off that potential group B strep. Um, so I was working with a lot of probiotic rich foods. Um, I was doing yogurt or kefir daily. Um, I was really emphasizing beyond probiotics, protein. And it's super important during the last stages of growth of the fetus. And collagen specifically for connective tissue and connective tissue repair. Now in hindsight, um, you, well, again, we'll all get to what happened with my birth, but in hindsight, I did learn that collagen on high dose can make it difficult for your bag of waters to break. So it could create a longer um, labor. Um, Interesting. <laughs> yeah, so great. And it's actually healthy because, you know, your bag of waters is what keeps your baby in a sterile environment, that amniotic fluid. And, and so it's more high risk if the bag of waters breaks too early than it breaking too late or not breaking at all. You can actually deliver a baby with the bag of waters intact, but it's much more difficult because you don't have that crowning head pressing on the cervix to directly help to engage and drive a vaginal birth. So interesting. I think that the collagen was still a great move um, and still is super healthy and sturdy to say the least. <laughs> um, so I think that it's great for bone joint formation and, and repair of, the, of your own body, but something to be mindful of as far as not too high dosing of collagen. Okay, so upping your protein, you're playing with some collagen, and then making sure you've got some good fats. Absolutely. So fats are essential. I was keeping with the EPA, DHA, the DHA for fetal brain development, um, lots of avocados. As my uh, appetite came up, I really tried to hit with the healthy fats. Um, and then, like I said last episode uh, with my second trimester, Mindful indulgences were definitely higher, especially in those last two weeks where I was kind of in the misery mode of get this baby out of me, um, trying to be conscious with my carb choices, but carbohydrate and calorie increase definitely occurred as well. Okay. And let's talk about movement. What kind of did, I mean, did you work out through your whole pregnancy or at all? Yoga? Did, what kind of stuff? Um, up until, so the whole pregnancy, I walked about three to five miles a day. Um, and then I was doing yoga very regularly up until week 35. And um, it was not hot yoga, but it was still a heated room. And I was actually noticing response from Stella where I was getting really rapid palpitations and a little bit too much fetal movement with the heat. So I figured it was maybe stressing her out. Mm -hmm. um, and my pulse rate was going up. So I stopped the yoga and just did some moderate salutations at home. But I did a lot of work on my yoga ball, like hip rotations, gyrations, especially 35 week on. Um, to really help with opening up in the hip flexion, um, to help with labor. 
Um, I when I was sleeping, I started sleeping with a pillow between my legs and crossing my top leg over my body um, to open up round ligaments. That really helps also with a natural birth, and also it just helps with balancing out your belly when you're sleeping in bed. And um, so that was kind of a stretching movement. I was using my foam roller daily on my shoulders, my hips, and different um, my sciatica and things like that. And then once we got to week 37 on, we would do belly sifting where I would be on all fours and we would take a scarf and uh, my husband Brady would stand behind me while I was on all fours holding each end of the scarf with it wrapped around my my belly and he would kind of just shimmy it. Um, And what that does is it just kind of jostles the belly just so slightly so that baby can kind of adjust its body positioning so it doesn't get lodged one way or another okay um yes and i remember you talking about some very specific things you did to prepare your cervix to get it lubricated and i guess (laughs) i don't know tell us about that (laughs) okay so so yeah so you definitely hear about evening primrose oil um and this is a role of gla which helps with um increasing prostaglandins um, which are pro-inflammatory compounds that help with contractions and also helps to soften the cervix Um, and so i was using borage oil which is a different form of gla in a higher dosage Um, and the borage oil i was doing in both a suppository um, so actually in i would i would pierce a capsule and then I would insert that um, into my vagina, um, and that would help to thin out the cervix. And I, I did um, have a very soft um, cervix, so that would help with a vaginal, quick vaginal birth. Um, and then also I was taking about two grams orally. And I started that at week 35 on. Um, I also was taking an herbal formula, which is called 5W. Um, It has different uh, herbs that support the reproductive system and the female glands. Um, It has black cohosh root, squaw vine, dong koi, butcher's broom, and red raspberry leaf. I think red raspberry leaf is the most known. Um, We think of like red raspberry leaf tea, all of these things. And then I was definitely drinking red raspberry leaf tea. All of these things help also with toning the uterus and helping with uterine contractions. So the 5W I was taking three twice a day um, starting at week 35 onward Um, and that was to help to induce natural uh, labor and then finally getting back to vagina talk and cervix um, I mean because that's what it's all about is yes (laughs) trying to get the exit ramp working yes Um, it was perineal massage Um, and so in the last couple weeks um or perineal, I'm sorry, not perineal, it's a flower, perineal massage. Um, And so it was actually like working with stretching the perineal. Um, They say in vaginal birth that there is a process called the ring of fire, um, which is when the head is just in the process of crowning and it's the most stretched before the head has passed through the cervix, the canal, um, (laughs) the vagina. And so the perineal massage really helps with keeping that area um, lubricated. And during vaginal birth, a good midwife or a doula or your partner pending can actually help to work that whole area. I've had friends that have had that massaged and lubricated during their vaginal birth, and that's one of the only ways they won't tear um, because it's actually manipulated during the process to help that, that head pass through. 
These are things you just don't know. Before I know, Car- baby. Carly's sque- pretty squeamish. <laughs> I don't have one yet, so I just, yeah. I'm just in shock mode. Um, okay, so I remember you had a couple episodes of early contractions. We kept thinking, oh, this is it, this is it. Um, and they were a little bit beyond what Braxton Hicks, which I think you've told me about before. What happened there, and, and what was the timing like on those? Yeah, so... Um, I started at week, I think, 35 or 36. I don't remember. I was teaching a cooking class, and I had actually just started the 5W herbal, so it could have been the perfect storm. It was day two of me taking the the formula that helps with contractions. I was teaching a cooking class. I was very pregnant, and I was on my feet for four hours and performing, per se. And that night, I started having contractions that were timeable. Um, and so you wait for the 353, three, which is um, contractions that um, are 313, I'm sorry. Um, they are going for one minute in length of time. Um, or is it 131? One, one? I'm sorry, I've, I've forgotten. But anyway, it's looking for contractions that are consistent um, and are a p- particular length of time and are at a rhythm and last for an hour in that length of time. Um, and so I'll go back to you guys on that. Um, but And you'll also hear why I don't know that. Um, but anyway, so we were timing them. They were about every two to three minutes, sometimes five minutes. It didn't get to that point of consistency, but it was enough to step back from work and really kind of mellow out. And then um, Braxton Hicks were pretty much ongoing. I was having ongoing uterine contractions and tightness in that area. And then um, also I had another episode at week 37, that weekend going into 38, where I thought early labor was happening. I was up all night with more what I was calling steamroller contractions, like this really heavy scooping feeling. Um, And that lasted for about seven hours. We actually ended up going out to brunch, kind of waiting it out. I didn't sleep all night probably the anticipatory stress and excitement and also um, the the unique new feeling, not sure what was happening in my body. Um, But the concern with that was that it just never progressed. Um, I ended up doing um, a circuit of movements that help with repositioning the baby, um, but I never progressed further. Okay. And so this leads us to the last couple of weeks that led to your birth story, which I know is very different from what you planned. So let's just tell everyone what happened. Yes. So at week 39, because it never progressed, um, then I kind of went radio silent as far as big picture contractions. And Carly knows this all too well because it was like, don't ask me if I've had any contractions or don't ask me about the baby. <laughs> let's just keep this calendar rolling. So at week 39, um, since I had had such early action, I was getting really frustrated um, and and wanting to get this show on the road. I asked for a vaginal exam because, again, the only things that the midwives had done up to that point was palpation. So I asked for a vaginal exam and for her to check if I was dilated at all. And that's really, you start to get really radio focused on cervic dilation as being your your progress. Um, And so, you know, you want to be 10 centimeters for delivery. So um, she said, you know, you're not even a pinky dilated, which was really frustrating. And I was like, oh my gosh, well, what were all those contractions doing? What was going on? Um, And so she said, you know, you're just going to have probably a really long labor. Hang in there. Um, You know, we'll see you next week. So I went in at week 40, and at that week, I I was now a day past my due date, and I said, okay, I want a vaginal exam, and I also want you to strip my membranes, which is where they can manually, um, with their hand or their fingertips, 
um, separate the bag of waters from the lining and that can typically help that bag of waters to break if it's if it's separated from the lining and she went in and she said you know you are maybe one to two centimeters but I can't really even get in there um, let's take you next door and do an ultrasound so that kind of made me nervous it was they, they typically don't do ultrasounds um, early on or, or unless we get past 40 weeks so 41 weeks I had one scheduled to look at fluid levels to make sure that there wasn't high risk um, so we went next door and I saw from her expression something was definitely different and it was that the baby was breech um, so this was a huge shock because all the while I was told that my baby was LOA, um, which is left occipital anterior, the perfect birthing position with head down, feet and arms to one side, and, and rump up in the air. And um, all the while, when they were palpating my belly, they were telling me while they were touching her head, this is her butt, and while they were touching her butt, this is her head. So I was you know, really feeling confident and looking forward to this natural vaginal birth. Well, at 40 weeks having a breech baby, there were only three options. And my midwife told me point blank that she did not do home births of a breech baby, um, that she had done three in the past, and one of them, the uh, baby did not survive. So those odds are not good odds, and I wasn't willing to entertain that or find a different midwife that would at that far along in the line. She said that no matter what, I had to see a high-risk OBGYN, um, who she coordinated care with and he would run an ultrasound and look at fluid and see if they could do a manipulation an inversion to flip the baby inside of me with one you know hand inside of me one hand outside of me and flip the baby so that I could still deliver vaginally or if we would have to do a planned cesarean and then the third option was um, if I wanted to go to the county hospital um, because it was the only facility in Houston that had a high enough insurance policy to do a breech vaginal delivery at 40 plus weeks. And that even with that being said, I would have a 90 plus percent chance of transfer to their operating room for a C-section. Um, and I had done medical rounds at that county hospital with gunshot wounds and, and things like that, and I was not willing to entertain that. But the fact that they would take me because of their liability policy was not promising to me. Um, so I saw the OBGYN the following day, and he looked at me and, and felt my belly and said right away, you know, that oh, that's a squishy butt down there. This is the head. And mama, you are too far along to even entertain an inversion. If we tried to flip the baby at this point with the low fluid levels, you would likely have a placental abruption. And that's where the placenta basically separates and can explode and the mother dies because she gets septic. Um, so he was not willing to try the inversion. So we went ahead and scheduled a C-section for later that day and... Um, we rock and rolled, I guess, is the biggest thing. And I know <laughs> we'll get into that in a moment. When you heard that you were going to have to give up your birth story, there was a lot of a mourning process. So let's tell people just about kind of your thoughts around that and frustrations. Yeah, I mean, I I I just felt in a way, I guess, and and it's something that I've really given up on. I I refuse to carry on because Stella is here and she's beautiful and healthy, so all is good in the world. Um, but I allowed myself one day um, of crying and feeling cheated. Um, I really felt like I had put so much time and energy and research and 
finances, honestly, really, you know, into having a natural birth and doing everything within my capacity. And I was honestly really frustrated that I had midwives um, who were quote unquote experts telling me an inaccurate positioning. And then this chiropractor that's certified in spinning babies telling me that the baby's fine. And, you know, no one questioning earlier on at week 34, week 33 or 36 even, that, you know, although we think she's LOA, she could be breached. This could be a butt. This could be a head. Um, And so I think I had a lot of self-doubt of wondering, should I have questioned them? You know, maybe I should have done something different or if I only would have had an advanced ultrasound, we would have known earlier and maybe at that point. But then I keep going back to what would I have done? I would have seen a chiropractor certified in spinning babies and had her try to help to manipulate the baby into the right positioning. Um, And you'll hear when we talk about my C-section that, Regardless, it seems based on a um, uterine defect that I have, (laughs) I don't think really much could have been done in in hindsight. So I've just kind of had to release that. But I think as women, we take a really emotional role of, uh, you know, both we talked about with the infertility episode, getting pregnant, there's such an emotional piece of that of you feel like as a woman, this is your job. Like you should be able to get pregnant. You should be able to carry a child and you should be able to birth a child. So I guess I felt in a way almost broken and saddened by that. Um, and then, like I said, frustrated with the experts I had called on hand not fulfilling that that role, I suppose. Yeah, and I can see how it's such a buildup. You're mentally preparing for nine months straight for this delivery, and so you have a very clear expectation of what you think will happen. Oh, yeah. So any veering is, is difficult. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I really felt like as, as freakish as it sounds, like I wanted to experience the most pain in my life like I wanted to experience pushing I wanted to experience that intimacy between my husband and I of having that moment of just total rawness um but yeah I I guess my body had other plans (laughs) and she's here and that's all that matters yes yes um so tell let's talk about the the operation and what the complication was and what a natural or gentle cesarean is. Yeah, so as I kind of, I, I like I said, I allowed myself about a day to mourn. That following day, I ended up actually that night um, having dinner and cutting myself off at 8 p.m. because I had an 8 a.m. appointment. And that following day, I showed up to the, to the surgeon and said, I'm NPO, meaning I haven't eaten for 12 hours. Like, let's get in there and get this baby out. And so I started researching gentle cesareans that night prior. So that first day that I found out when I finally surrendered, this is what I'm doing. Now, how do I work with it to make it the best outcomes possible? And I knew that my biggest concern, which we've talked about in other episodes, was about the microbiome of my baby. Um, we know that so much research with things like Crohn's, ulcerative colitis, autoimmune disease, tie back to a high rate of cesarean births because that baby is in that amniotic sac, which is sterile, and then it's delivered in a sterile operating room. So it never gets inoculated or doused in bacteria, um, and it it has a lot of sterility, and so its gut doesn't get fertilized, per se, with good bacteria in a natural state. And so that was one of my primary concerns. Um, The way that I was able to navigate around that as best as possible is that I did a vaginal inoculation. And so what we took was a non-sterile gauze and I inserted that gauze into my vagina for an hour plus. 
and then we put it in a non-sterile container we just put it honestly in a ziploc bag and my midwife held on to that and the second that stella was born um, as they're doing her apgar test to look at her respiratory rate her color and all of those things then the first literal minute um, she was swabbed with that that vaginal culture so it was put up her nose it was put in her eyes it was put in her oral cavity in her ears and then she was actually sucking on it um, for a good couple minutes and then they had her sucking on it multiple times so that was the best way that we could try to bring some of those vaginal cultures into her because because when you're delivering a baby vaginally, their ears, nose, mouth, eyes are open and, and really being passed through that canal and getting all that bacteria up into that cavity. So that's one of the, the first things that we were able to do to best navigate. And then post-birth, I've been giving her the, the Metagenics Oral Probiotic Ultraflora Baby, and she gets five uh, drops of that every day. So we're hoping that that'll best support as best as possible, you know, both uh, mimicking the vaginal environment and then also providing the, the probacteria for her microbiome. So that was one element I was really um, focused on. The other thing was to try to, within a natural or gentle cesarean, experience a birthing process. So I um, requested that they lower the drape. They have a drape up, of course, um, to help your husband not faint, I'm convinced, and also um, to um, help to keep things sterile. And so when they were delivering Stella, they were able to lower the drape. So I was able to see her delivered out of my body, which was kind of special and more mimicking that true birth-like experience. Um, and then also she was put chest to chest right upon delivery, um, where they were able to check some of her vitals on my chest. Um, and so she was able to um, latch and breastfeed right away and connect. And then my husband, when they were sewing me up, and I'll get into the surgery component in a moment, when they were sewing me up, my husband didn't leave her side and was able to go chest to chest with her. So he actually had his shirt up and she was on direct skin contact, um, which works as like a natural incubator. So really the best transition for that baby um, in the real world environment, especially when they come out cesarean because it's kind of a bigger shock to their system versus a vaginal birth. Um, so all those things, and then the last thing within the gentle or natural cesarean was within the placenta, um, I asked that they allow a delayed placenta um, or cord cutting. Um, and so they milked the cord a little bit um, so that all of the red blood cells, all of those nutrients were able to be delivered to Stella because often that gets cut within the first couple seconds and a lot of that stays in the placenta and doesn't carry to the baby. Um, so we allowed some of that to carry to the baby. He was only able to do about two minutes because with a C-section it's a little riskier than doing that vaginally. Um, but we got at least delayed cord clamping to some degree and I also preserved my placenta and got it encapsulated, but we can talk about that as well. <laughs> um, so I remember you telling me that as the delivery was happening, all you could see was Brady's face, and you could see, and it was, I guess, the time was a little bit more delayed than you expected. They said 10 seconds, and then it was more than 10 seconds. Yeah. So in hindsight, tell everyone what that what was happening at that yeah, point. Yeah, so the process of the, the, the surgery, I, I got a, re a regional spinal um, for, for numbing me as, as anesthesia. And um, that was one of the scariest parts. I had never had a major surgery. 
Um, one of the things that really helped me is I requested that they play Pandora radio. So I had Beatles Pandora station on. Um, and the, the regional spinal, um, they had to do without my husband or midwife in the room. And that was my biggest fear moment, I think, honestly, just like, oh my gosh, this is real. Here we go. Um, then I, I pretty quickly, immediately lost sensation of my lower half of my body, but was mentally with it the whole procedure. Um, I had them do my IV on my non-dominant hand. So I had my right arm free to help with holding Stella after the birth and, and just not feel like I'm in a straitjacket. <laughs> um, so Brady came in um, before they did the first cut. Um, all things were going smoothly. Um, Beetle Station is playing on. And my midwife had told me, you're going to anticipate 30 seconds of pressure. Um, and the best way I can describe it to people is it's kind of like when you go to the dentist, if you've had a tooth removed, um, like if you can think back to your wisdom teeth or whatnot, if you weren't under, um, where you don't feel, but you can feel the pressure, like you can feel the actual tooth being pulled um, out of your gum line, um, but you don't feel pain per se. And so I was told I'd feel about max 30 seconds of pressure and that that would be my baby being pulled out of my body. And so I heard, you know, my midwife's looking over the, the curtain and she's saying, okay, and here comes the pressure and a little more pressure and a little more pressure. And that, that kept being said. And I saw Brady's eyes getting bigger and my midwife's eyes getting bigger. And then all of a sudden the uh, physician stood up because he was doing the procedure on his stool. And all of a sudden he stood up and his elbow went forward and he was like pushing against the curtain. And what happened was I had a, I have apparently a uterine defect and it would not have been able to be diagnosed through ultrasound, but it's called a Millarian fusion. And um, my uterus is shaped essentially like a mitt versus a balloon, um, which is what a healthy uterus is supposed to be shaped as. And so the thumb essentially of the mitt engulfed around my baby's head and um, with a cesarean, a C-section in general, if the baby's not breached, they can really easily just deliver just like they would. The head comes out, they grab by the shoulders, simple, 10 seconds. Breach baby usually is about 30 seconds because the butt's forward, so they have to kind of pop the hips up and then kind of gather that head to make sure that nothing gets yanked or pulled. Um, but with my birth, <laughs> he said that after, of course, it made him sweat um, and that he's only encountered this two other times and um, in different defects but this was the first malaria infusion and um, what he had to do was actually he had his entire forearm in my uterus and had to scoop her head out from that fused area and so he was using a lot of force and it ended up taking a minute and a half which felt like hours um, and so when she was at, so I was, of course, it was, it was just intense. It wasn't directly painful, but it was intense and scary. And um, then she came out. And um, one of my uh, random moments with my connection with music and whatnot was that um, this Van Morrison song came on where the chorus is, you were born again, you were born again. And, and, and Brady and I both started crying kind of when Van Morrison came on. It kind of took the mood down. And the baby came out and um, all was well. And then I had the moment of, okay, why isn't she crying? And she started crying in moments. Um, so all was well then, and, but it was scary. And I heard in hindsight that um, if I do have another baby, it would always be breached because of that shape of my uterus. The head's always gonna find that thumb and that it would be impossible to have a vaginal birth because of the element of it engulfing. It won't, it won't descend. 
And so likely when I was having those early contractions, it was my uterus trying to work the baby and the baby not dislodging. And so the whole process stopping. And I was doing all these things to induce labor, like acupuncture and massage and herbs and whatnot. And so my body was trying to induce, but it wasn't able to activate because there was nothing pressing on my cervix to dilate and the baby wasn't descending. It's crazy in hindsight, all this stuff to think about. You don't even know all the possibilities of what can happen. Yes. I didn't even know that a uterus could be shaped like that. <laughs> Me neither. Me neither. And so, you know, and that's why in hindsight, I, I can't be frustrated or mad or think I could have done anything different because it just is. And I think that's one of my biggest take-homes is that, you know, I, I believe so strongly that you need to trust in your body and you also need to trust in your intuition. And you can do everything you can to support your body in the most natural way. But there's also, you know, the big element of how we run our medical practice is that we are guided in, um, guided by nature, but grounded in scientific discovery. And I really practice functional integrative medicine, acknowledging the benefits of medical intervention as well as the influence of natural processes because there's a good marriage of the two and there's definitely a need of the two and yeah had i been monitored with ultrasound i think the only change would have been is that i would have had her earlier but it would have been the same outcomes um and i think that if they were to be able to do an inversion and move her I, I don't think that the physician thought it wouldn't be possible because of how she was engulfed, that that would have been really high risk and potentially she could have had some form of paralysis had they been in there trying to flip her um, and, you know, her, her head not dislodging. So I think all happened for a reason and, and um, happy that she's on the other side <laughs> for sure. Absolutely. And with that being said, how heavy was she when she was born? <laughs> yes. Yeah, so she was 8 pounds, 11.7 ounces. She's a big girl. Yeah. Big little lady. And 21 centimeters and... Um, Growing like a weed. Yeah, absolutely. She's uh, last we checked uh, at uh, three and a half weeks, she was 12 pounds. So <laughs> she is packing on the pounds. Um, we'll do a whole nother episode on breastfeeding and I think infant care because I think that's another yeah, topic sure. to discuss. For sure. Um, and that's been a whole process and, and kind of catch you up with the, the placenta stuff. Yeah, from birth, what happened. Sure. Um, but I guess because the, I'll, I'll touch on the placenta real quick. I um, did have it encapsulated. In the state of Texas, it's legal, um, and it's your right to request your placenta. Intuitively, again, I just didn't feel right about the person that came and picked it up. She didn't have a cooler, um, and that was huge to me because I wanted her to keep it like food safety certified, you know, as far as the danger zone. So she didn't have a cooler. She was dehydrating the placenta, and she was going to do it as a, a raw dehydration, and I was going to take it in its encapsulated form. Um, but I ended up not taking it because I was weaning off of pain medications. I had so many changes in my body from this major surgery, and we'll talk about recovery more in detail, but I just never ended up taking it. And now I'm five weeks out and don't feel the need. I haven't had any postpartum crashes, so I'm just not um, consuming my placenta. And I think that there are pros and cons, and I think, like you said, let's discuss that in a future episode. But sure. just for those of you that kind of finishing my birth story, I did get it preserved, but I didn't end up taking it. Um, Good to know. Yeah, yeah. And lots of bone broth in my recovery, gelatin, and um, I was up and at it within 12 hours after the birth. 
Okay, so just to wrap up, what is, and it's probably hard to pick one, but pick one piece of advice for someone who is pregnant. Oh, goodness. So, you know, you can't rush nature. Um, You know, they always say God laughs at plans, and I think that that's a great line for my birth. Uh, Yeah, I like (laughs) that. (laughs) Like, you can only do so much, and the universe, however you want to state that, is going to have its own plan for you. And so, you know, do what you can to spend uh, focused time and energy with your husband and you really, I, I think you can overplan to some degree, but you just have to trust in the universe and, and trust your body and it will all happen. Um, and, and nourish your body is really important as well. So think of those key things, your protein, your healthy fats, your bone broth, and, um, you know, drink that red raspberry leaf tea in the last five weeks and see how your body will respond. Love it. Well, thanks everyone for listening. Be sure to tune in to Stella's first couple months and Allie's recovery that will be coming down the line soon. Thank you for listening to the Naturally Nourished Podcast. Visit our blog at AllieMillerRD.com for recipes, wellness tips, and food as medicine meal plans. Connect with Allie and Carly at AllieMillerRD on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Until next time, stay nourished and be well.